Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Within our modern lives, and even with all the benefits of medicine and technology, we're still bound by primal forces. Now, Angela Savage challenges us to challenges us to consider one of those compelling issues in her novel Mother of Pearl, which tackles how society and individuals grapple with fertility. So Angela, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you so much, David. It's such a pleasure to be back here. Well, let's talk about some of these characters in this novel. We know it's about fertility. Let's start with Meg, who's grappling with infertility, and she's got a number of options open to her. She's, um, Meg is uh, someone who represents uh, a lot of women in Australia who are, are des- desperate to have a child and um, who go through the IVF process unsuccessfully. And in fact, the majority, the vast majority of women who go through IVF will come out the other end without a live birth. So the industry has a failure rate of something like 60 to 70%. And that was one of the things I kind of wanted to signpost in this novel. Um, but there and are other alternatives. Well, yes, increasingly in our era of um, international assisted reproductive technology. And the one that uh, Meg ends up going down the path of is transnational commercial surrogacy, which means basically going overseas to hire a woman from another country to have a baby for you. Well, this raises all sorts of interesting issues. One of the first ones is because we have the medical technology, does that entitle us to do it? It's a great question and, um, you know, certainly these issues are debated hotly by ethicists Um, and, in fact, this novel came out of PhD research um, in creative writing and when I looked at the kind of arguments that were happening in the scholarly papers and in the media, there were sort of three main positions that emerged. There was this kind of those who were wildly in favour of surrogacy and it was all about markets and, you know, capacity to pay and choice and consumer choice and, and choice to participate, agency and all that kind of thing. The other end of the spectrum, you had the abolitionists who were just fiercely opposed to any form of surrogacy because it was exploitative. And in the middle, you have the harm reductionists who are are kind of advocating for regulations, standards, human rights framework. Now, I have a background in HIV work, so I'm at heart, I'm an absolute harm reductionist. So uh, that's a roundabout way of answering that question to say, just because we have the technology doesn't mean we should use it. No, but can we stop it? Also, no. So what can we do to minimise the harm involved but in this technology? But it gives people technology? A, a, a greater choice. I mean, you've got a, a gay couple in there, um, Stephen and Willem, who actually have a child. They have a perception now of family that would have otherwise, without the technology, been unavailable to them, perhaps. That's true. And traditionally, um, uh, gay and lesbian couples have found it very, very hard to access um, other ways of forming families. Um, so back in the day where adoption was considered um, one pathway to parenthood, certainly it would have been very almost impossible for a couple like Stephen and Willem to um, become parents. Now, adoption, of course, has a very, very problematic um, history in this country due to the stolen generation as well as the forgotten Australians. So uh, not to mention that... Um, Again, there's been sort of so much critical reflection on, on that family formation um, that, and I think it's signalled in, in my novel that that kind of pathway has um, really become very difficult. So uh, when 
there's an there, there are certain couples for whom uh, for whom ART or assisted reproductive technology is a necessity if they want to try and go down a, a pathway to parenthood. And for gay men at the moment, short of exogenesis, um, we they are kind of beholden to um, to surrogates. However, there's still decisions that people can make around whether to engage in commercial surrogacy and surrogacy overseas versus what's called altruistic surrogacy, which is unpaid and um, is the only form of surrogacy that's legal in Australia. But with Meg, it's become an obsession to the point where there's a selfishness about it. Absolutely. And I think, look, I, I know that a lot of people will respond very strongly to Meg and probably won't find her very likeable. And I think it was one of the tricky things about writing a character like that because she was more likeable in earlier drafts. Um, but I really wanted to try and convey and I hope in an empathetic way, the all-encompassing grief of childlessness, just how incredibly powerful a drive that is, but also um, critically reflect on the fact that no one in an industry that's geared to make money out of infertility will at any point say to you, hey, maybe this isn't going to work for you. Maybe you need to find another way of being happy, mm. which is what, uh, you know, and, I, and so I don't see, whilst I see Meg's, um, solipsism is what a friend of mine referred to it as, um, quite true to life because I think that grief of childlessness is so all-encompassing. I also think there's a whole industry um, and not to mention the fact that, if I can take even one more step back, you know, still the biggest cause of infertility in Australian women is untreated is sexually transmitted infections. So if we were serious about kind of addressing these problems, we'd have public health funding and campaigns around that stuff too. As a counterpoint then to Meg, you have Anna, who's Meg's sister, who's an aid worker. So she's selfless. Well, that's the common perception of aid workers. Um, and they're, and having been a former aid worker, I can probably, I'm probably in a good position to say that that altruism is seldom unmixed um, and that uh, there's always a kind of, well, for me, it was an incredibly privileged experience to work in that environment. And there are also um, complexities around decisions to be an expatriate versus someone living in your own country. Um, but I think I think Anna's real selflessness comes in relation to the decisions she makes along the way, and I'm not going to say what they are for fear of spoilers, but in relation to her sister. Um, but she also then provides a, a different perspective on the situation, does. which yes. then comes into play when uh, we go to Thailand and we meet Maud, who is the potential surrogate mother. But this raises all sorts of interesting issues about cultural perceptions of fertility and the reasons why Maud's doing it. Is she being taken advantage of as a third world, uh, a member of a third world country? Or is it altruism? What have you achieved here by putting that contrast so of culture? I really... You know, I wanted to look at um, surrogacy in Thailand specifically because Thailand's a country where I've spent a lot of time and there was a lot of work done around Thailand in, uh, surrogacy in India, which was, you know, a, a big source country for about um, the 16 years that the industry was operating. And I was curious to see whether there were issues at play other than just financial imperatives around surrogacy. And Thailand is very different culturally and there's... Um, a concept of making merit, which is central to Buddhist faith. Um, and interestingly, the, 
the term, the Thai term for surrogate mother, me uh, umbum, it actually means the mother who holds merit, who cradles merit in her arms. And there, there is a traditional kind of village-style surrogacy where um, a sister who may not have children of her own might be given another sister's child to raise as her own. So it's much more complex than it appears on the surface. There can be, um, there can be grounds to say women can make decisions to go down that path that are culturally resonant for them, um, that, that have meaning beyond what we would necessarily, the kind of cut and dried Western uh, market type analysis what, that we might bring to the scenario, or even the human rights analysis that we might bring to the you've scenario. You've contrasted those, because on the one hand, you've got this image of a business and uh, Mod is an oven. That is the actual way she's described. Um, how by, do think, by one of the nurses, Think yes. of yourself <laughs> as an oven. The parents provide the ingredients. The di- doctor is like a baker who puts the dough inside. Your body does the cooking. And when the cake is done, the doctor takes it out and gives it to the parents. That's on one hand, but you've then got that notion of... Uh, merit and such like. But it's also a financial transaction. And, and Meg says at one stage, this is a business when they uh, get rid of one surrogate to, because it hasn't succeeded and move to another. Yes. And therefore you are objectifying the Absolutely. individual. And I think, I think um, that one of the most confronting aspects of me when looking at surrogacy, commercial surrogacy, was the kind of um, way that people engage in what's called the intended parents, the intending parents, can, and I think, I'm going to use sort of slightly controversial language, but I think can kid themselves that a financial transaction wipes the debt that they owe someone who gives birth to to a child on their behalf. The best practice surrogacy I've seen um, is... uh, has built relationships that will last a lifetime, that has transformed lives. Families have changed their entire approach um, to how they understand kinship and all of that kind of thing. The worst are where the paying couples don't even meet the woman who births their child. Um, But there's a contract. You know, the the parent owns the surrogate in many ways. You will do this, you will do that. What you do, however, is there's an interesting... uh, idea that Anna brings up because the egg is provided by a Thai woman and it's fertilised by the husband, etc. Does the parent therefore have the obligation to acknowledge the DNA heritage, shall we say, of that um, child who's of two different cultures? Um, It's a great question Uh, and interestingly, the way that international egg donation works is that it's largely uh, transacted as anonymous donation. Um, so you can read a pro- it's it's extraordinary reading these profiles and catalogues of women egg donors. Their you know their their kind of specifications, their education levels, um, their dem- demographic characteristics. Uh, you can purchase an egg online. You can have that egg brought to another country where it's um, where it's fertilised. You can and and now in the this area of deregulation, you can have that embryo transferred in, into a woman from a third country who gives birth in a fourth country. And there is no obligation um, on the part... There's not even an obligation on the part of the intending parents to disclose that the child's birth is in any way unusual. Obviously, if your egg donor is from a culture that's different from yours, that throws up interesting questions. I guess um, the experts in this area say... Like there, it, it uncontroversially, the evidence is the sooner the child knows about their own origins, the more likely they are to be able to grow up um, healthy and happy, and the more access they have 
to those people who are part of their birth story, their life story, um, the better it's going to be for everyone concerned. But it's amazing the number of people I hear about who keep that information from the child. But this is what gets me because you're serving a self-interest as a, as a parent, but the offspring then, that, that's the one you have to think of because Absolutely. if that child is growing up as a half-caste, surely that knowledge would help them come to terms with their situation rather than being a product and the ownership sure. of... Um, but it's just extraordinary that even for parents of mixed-race children, they can um, convince themselves... Because everything's so immediate and urgent and because they're responding usually to like a decade. Most people who who choose who go down that surrogacy path, it's never a first choice or rarely unless you're literally born without a womb, um, have probably been through about 10 years of unsuccessful IVF. Um, and everything is focused on that goal of having the child, the healthy child to bring home. And I found this time and time again, even in all the accounts of surrogacy and probably the book I should write next is what happens to that child because there's, not, there's very little thought put into what happens after the birth. The, the birth is like the end goal. Um, whereas any parent knows, um, it's just the beginning of the story. You've even got the language of IVF and, and fertility, which confines the framework of thinking. That's another area. And we're going to have to, unfortunately, conclude the interview. But what you've got uh, at the end is a, a parallel drawn between Anna and Maud in many ways, which is quite intriguing, and that binds everything together. Um, we can't actually say too much about that. That would give it away. But it's therefore up to the reader to look into this. But it's a fascinating insight into the world of fertility, the actions and behaviours of parents and would-be parents, and the consequences socially, individually, culturally. A, a fascinating read. Thank the, you. And we didn't even get into that image of Mother of Pearl. So <laughs> the we've, pearls. We've, we've the pearls, run the out pearls. of... But look, I really, my hope with the book, David, is that people will read it and ask their own questions and come to their own conclusions. Like it's really, it was really very much designed to kind of walk people through that incredibly complex ethical terrain without telling them what to think at the end. Mm. So, um, yes, I really encourage people to kind of engage with The book is issues. called Mother of Pearl. The author is Angela Savage and it's a transit lounge release. Thank you, Angela. Thank you, David. Well, I'm moving to something a little bit closer to home, Christmas Hills. Alice Bishop grew up there. Now, it sounds idyllic, except for what happened 10 years ago. Just remind us, Alice Bishop. Well, I think everyone um, listening, well, most people remember uh, Black Saturday, which was on the 7th of February in 2009. Um, it's now known as Australia's worst recorded natural disaster. So there were um, quite a few big um, bushfires, which are actually classified as firestorms because of their intensity, which um, ravaged the state. And Christmas Hills, where I grew up, um, not many people will know of, but it overlooks the Yarra Valley. And um, a lot of people, <clears throat> excuse me, will think of King Lake when they think about Black Saturday and the fires from King Lake um, came down over our house. So, Well, um, <coughs> you talk about the, the, this fireball, this firestorm, twice the size of Hiroshima. So, yeah, so I use that um, to kind of explain the intensity of the radiant heat um, that came from the fires. So um, it was measured after the fact that the radiant heat um, that came from the bushfires of Black Saturday were was the equivalent to two Hiroshima bombs. And I think 
I think that's a really good way to look at the fires in the sense that sometimes you think, um, I think our national narrative is one of you can stay and defend and um, that's changed a little bit over the last 10 years. But in the face of a firestorm of that intensity, um, there's just really, really no hope to, to be defending your house. One of the quotes from Alice's book, a, a Constant Hum, all the silvers melted away that weekend, wedding rings and shiny foil insulations. Just so strong. Now, of course, um, your parents lost their home. Yes, yeah. But there were also many deaths. That's the thing, and I think that's something that I always like to talk about when I'm talking about a constant hum because we lost a lot. My parents' house burnt down in a matter of probably 15 minutes um, is how long it took for everything to go. Um, But I do know a lot of people from the area who lost a lot more than that and um, obviously there was 180 people killed on the day and the ripple effects of that on people's lives. um, I don't think it's just contained to the first year after and I think that's what I tried to do in A Constant Harm is to show that a lot of people are okay after bushfire um, in the you know the five years or the ten years. Um, obviously, we recently had the ten year anniversary, um, but there are many people who are, are still struggling with that fallout. This isn't just your family story, is it? No, yeah, no. It's um, it's the story of my community. But in saying that, I can't possibly claim that I've covered all of those stories. I think there's over 40, 45 different stories. And they're all a variety of lengths. There's one that's just one sentence long and others short story variety. So was it the the story that to tell or the people that instigated the length of the article? Um, that's a good question. I think some of the very short, short, short uh, microfictions actually started out as 3,000 word stories and and they just weren't working for whatever reason. So, um, you know, you can distill a feeling down into a few images or a oh. character. And for me, that's the kind of fiction that I love reading. I love writers like Josephine Rowe from Melbourne. And um, I spend too much time on Twitter. <laughs> and um, I think there's something really powerful about short fiction and especially um, working in an office and only having certain, you know, hours in the day to, to consume um, good writing. I, I'm really attracted to, re- attracted to reading short fiction. You, you can tell there's one in it called Tissue, which is actually poetic, and it's oh, four lines long, but mm. it, it, it does leave you with an, Im- an image. Now, the survivors all congregated down in one of the halls, and you would assume that all would be happy, but this is where Alice Bishop has taken these little snippets. We see Sophie and Dave. They've been separated and they find themselves together. They've lost everything. Why isn't Sophie happy? I think I think bushfire offers a really stripped back environment for you to reconsider your relationships and your friendships and, and where you are in life because you realise that things can go within a matter of moments and I think in, in our kind of Western, you know, white culture, we're obsessed with objects and building up wealth and and ticking the boxes of marriage or, you know, mm. um, motherhood or the things that um, Ange just discovered, um, covered in her book. And I think, I think when you're faced with the absolute, um, how we're all at, at the whim of, of the environment that we don't treat very well, um, 
it really it really changes your perspective, I think. All she's got left is Dave, and she doesn't really like him <laughs> after years of domestic um, violence. <clears throat> yeah. Well, there was charity money and insurance money and some of them, you know, sort of spent it on frivolities, you know, Port Douglas holidays or worrying about spending it on expensive takeaways because they don't have a kitchen to cook in or a teenage girl wanting to buy nice underwear. (laughs) Now, there's always the decision to rebuild or move on and it's fraught because, well, the first story is about bunkers. Yeah, so that story actually was based on my own family's experience of um, choosing whether to go back. So my parents rebuilt on the block um, in in the same spot, maybe three metres to the left. Um, and there was a lot of tension within our family about that decision and whether that was a safe decision. There was a lot of... Um, when something as big as Black Saturday happens, I think everyone has to make their own decisions of whether to return or not to return. And there's a lot of judgment from people maybe who live in the city who don't understand that pull back to landscape. Um, You know, as a white Australian, I don't have the same connection to the land as Indigenous Australians have had for thousands and thousands of years. But I do still feel like the landscape in Christmas Hills is is one of the only places I feel really, truly at home. Mm -hmm. And that's why we wanted to return. But some people, the trauma was so... But it's not even the trauma, it's the increased costs. Well, the bureaucracy. The, the new yeah. red tape that was going in and things like, which I didn't realise, the um, arborists that you had yeah. to employ to. Yeah. Uh, and, well, that brings us to another one of the shorts, one of the glimpses. They're not really short, glimpses. Clearing. Now, this has got Theo cutting back the bush. So, uh, but he, he's starting to cut it back so overzealously that it's worrying his wife. Yeah, so that one was that I think a lot of my short, short stories kind of begin in, a, in an image and that was actually based on my own father who I remember I was standing on the deck of our rebuilt house. I went out there for the weekend and I saw him way down in the valley with a chainsaw cutting back the wattle because the wattle um, isn't necessarily native to that area but um, for whatever reason it sprouted up um, really, really, really thickly and really fast and I think... Um, what I kind of weave through a constant hum to is that gendered response to bushfire. And there's a lot of stuff about um, um, the pressures on women, um, but also the pressures on men to to really kind of that, that man versus bush idea that um, white culture really perpetuates um, at the expense of so much that the bush is something to be contained and controlled. And then after Black Saturday, which was such a reality check for many people, those feelings still kind of, yeah, they just, they came out so much more. And it's just that story in itself was one that I just wanted to to show the, that image just really stuck with me. And I think it was representative of so much. Look, um, earlier on in the year, I spoke with a woman called uh, Fiona Lowe about her book, Home Fires, and she spent quite a bit about it, about in this book talking about the reaction of teenagers and in her book I'm sorry the teenagers went into binge drinking and a lot of sex and stuff your teenagers don't do that which but but you know what we do is we get your teenagers in new schools Mm. and you know that whole thing because they have to acquaint with Mm. new people and and um 
oh, new peers, and you know, mm. there's one little thirteen-year-old Nick, uh, Nick um, uh, and he's nicknamed the Bushfire Kid. Mm. And there's another who uh, they're very nice teachers, sort of years on, and new boy comes in, and, and the the thing about um, well, how, how about we have it? This is from page <laughs> sixty-one. Um, sure, let me find a, it. Okay. So this one, um, this one's called Soft News. Um, and this one I wanted to read um, because it does talk about climate change and, it, and about the, the kind of the reactions of younger, younger people to bushfire. So it's called Soft News. Okay, class, let's get straight into it. What will climate change really be like? Mrs. Bellet's small and wears those clear glitter jelly sandals just like my auntie Narelle did. I think it's very important to talk about the reality of things, she says. Her purple texture scratches across the whiteboard, running low on ink. List three things you would save from your burning house. I don't get upset that no one brings up Black Saturday from, when, from back when I was seven. Other stuff, much worse stuff, has been on the news since. But the air gets a bit sparkly and it's hard to breathe. My neck feels hot like there's an electric blanket under my skin. It's okay, though. The feeling stops me yelling out at the other girls. You wouldn't care about saving your Maybelline, soft toys from when you were little, not even your Adidas tights. You wouldn't worry about your pastel phone charger or not even your phone. For just a moment, though, I almost yell my list out loud. My list, it goes like this. One, mum. Two, Auntie Narelle. Three, Miss, Miss, Oi Miss, the new kid, I forget his name, interrupts Mrs Ballet. He does it by putting his pen-marked hand up and automatically starting to almost shout. Some of the other cute girls, the more popular ones, Caitlin and Kecko and Ray, they laugh. Miss, Oi, come on Miss, Chris, maybe Oscar, I forgot his name, continues. Come on, miss, he says, smiling. Can't we at least pick five things? Five things. Oh, dear. Oh, and she's just getting to three. After a mum and auntie Narelle. Look, uh, one of the other short stories in this sticks, you uh, you get the idea from a much younger child, which, oh, it's just heart-rendering, that story. Mm. And I know you won the Lord Mayor's Creative Writing yeah. Award for that one. All people get a snapshot. There's the baddie who has torched so many cars in his time and he's yeah. thinking about good now. Yeah. <laughs> and there's Linda who lost her daughter, son-in-law and grandson, and she's sitting through a, a whole court case. And basic, the court case is against the arsonist. And, yeah, and I think it's really important to mention um, Chloe Hooper's beautiful book, The Arsonist, which came out recently, which gives a whole other perspective on that story. Um, and I could, I would recommend everyone to grab a coffee, a copy of that because it does offer another perspective. I think on 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 arson. We uh, the book is actually called the Constant Hum, and there's we have a lot of hums. We have the white noise hum, the echoing hum of semi-familiar voices, the hum of talkback radio, the high-pitched hum that comes with contained breath with tightening chest, the hum of the pol- faulty power lines, which of course we know cause the, um, the bushfire, and perhaps the happiness 
bone humming glow. Now, all of these hums sort of turn up through many, many of these stories. Mm. Was it uh, a theme that you wanted to weave through? It was. I think I came up with the title before I'd even known about wanting to write the book. Um, it sounds kind of twee, but it, it was in a diary of mine in, in my early 20s where I was quite anxious. And the hum for me is both a positive and a negative thing. It's the hum of um, having the rug ripped from beneath your feet in, in natural disaster and, and the white noise of, of being in a situation where you, all your kind of reference points disappear. But it's also the hum of, of regeneration and of hope and of of the bush growing back and, and I feel very, very lucky to be here to see that and to write about it. Well, I think I've been very lucky to read your encounters you, with Jen. it all. It's just been beautiful. Tenderly written portraits of heartache. I think that's how I would <laughs> sum you. it up. And that was Alice Bishop talking about her book, A Constant Hum, published by text. And I was talking with my, uh, Angela Savage about her book, Mother of Pearl, and that was from Transit Lounge.